Well, we have made it to Genesis chapter 17. The title is Cut Off in Devotion. This is the fourth meeting that Abram has with God. And in each of these meetings, God is emphasizing, introducing, reiterating the covenant that he has made with him. In this scene, he is 99 years old. And Ishmael is 13 years old. So from chapter 16 to chapter 17, you have a span of 13 years. And in this chapter, he's going to reinforce the covenant that he's made with him. And the covenant is this. I will be your God and you'll be my people. I'm going to bless you exceedingly. You're going to have many descendants. And I'm going to give you this land. And this covenant is an everlasting covenant. But up until this time, there has been no sign of the covenant. There's not been a rainbow like with uh, Noah's covenant. There's not been the Sabbath day rest as in Moses' covenant. There's going to be introduced now the rite of circumcision, which becomes the sign of the covenant that God has made with Abraham and is very clearly stated, and your descendants. So this is where we're going to be looking. Um, we find that um, Sarai and Abraham's names are going to be changed to Sarah and Abraham. Um, so I, I'm, th- I'm mindful. I want to put this out here right at the beginning because, you know, it's like, all right, so we're going to talk about a chapter on circumcision from these guys that are like thousand years ago. How could that possibly have any relevance to my life? Complete relevance. And actually, this is what Jesus said. He says, lo, it is written of me in the volume of the book. The law and the prophets, they are all teaching about me. How so? Well, in chapter 17, as a physical rite of circumcision is introduced to the Israelites and to the descendants of Abraham, uh, we will find at the end of our study, we'll pick it up, that in the New Testament, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has circumcised all of our hearts, male or female, Jew or Gentile, that he has spiritually, by the hands of Christ, we have been circumcised. So that's complete relevance. And we'll find that the writers of the New Testament pick this topic up quite often. But we'll begin reading there in verse 1. We read, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me. And be blameless. The name is El Shaddai, which I'm sure many of you have heard that name of God, the Hebrew name for God is El Shaddai. What does it mean? It means Almighty God, it means the powerful one. It's a name that is given to emphasize the strength and the ability of God. That's what's trying to be communicated here. And every time God introduces himself or shows an aspect of his character or nature, it is for the context of what's going on. For example, you can read through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. In chapters 3 and 4, as you read through that, chapters 2 and 3, as you read through that, what you find is God will introduce an aspect of his, uh, how he revealed himself in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation. Well, how he reveals himself becomes significant to the message that he delivers them. Well, what's going on here? Well, Abram is going to hear that at 99 years old and Sarah being at 89 or 90, they're going to have a baby. That seems like a power problem right there, doesn't it? It's like, wait a minute. 
This is not going to happen. So before the Lord even introduces the subject, he says, I'm Almighty God. What's that? I can do anything. I'm omnipotent. I'm all-powerful. And whatever we're going to talk about right now, Abraham, don't worry about it. I can get it done. And so it is significant. But I, I just wonder, if there, is there an area in your life where you need to see the power of God show up? And the Lord has not asked us to live this life or walk this life out in our own strength or in our own power. It's like the Apostle Paul says when he's talking about ministry. He says, who's sufficient for these things? What's that? Who can possibly do the work that we've been called to do? But he goes on to thank the Lord for his grace and his strength. When the early church began 2,000 years ago, they didn't have any money. They didn't have any buildings. They didn't have any schools. They didn't have any seminaries. They didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have any mission organizations. They didn't have anything. And was that a problem for El Shaddai? Evidently not, because here we sit. The fruit of the ministry that began there on the day of Pentecost all those years ago. And so for us, as we look at, at what's going on, we may look and say, man, the church is really going to have a difficult time. Why do we say that? Why do we say the church is going to have it? We may. I mean, the Lord told us we would suffer persecution. But we should not feel like we're up against the ropes and we're going down for the count. It does, listen, God does not care what goes on in the governments of men as it relates to what he wants to accomplish. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He opens doors that no man can shut, and he shuts doors that no man can open. So we have no reason to be afraid of what is going to happen in the coming months, in the coming years, however long the Lord should tarry, because the church is his. It's not my church. It's not your church. We're just members of this organization that God started 2,000 years ago, called the church, and he's going to move forward, and he's going to do exactly what he wants to do. So am I, um, am I concerned about the laws that could be passed and what's going to happen? Um, certainly I am concerned about the laws and the orders that could be passed, but I'm not worried about it in the sense of, and I guess the Lord's work is really going to begin to wind down. God has done his best work when there has been the most opposition. So I pray that your faith will be full and that your eyes will be wide open in expectation of what God wants to do this year through your life and through my life and our life together. And we don't have to worry about if we have more power or less power in the government, more favor or less favor in the culture because we're not measuring our ability. We're measuring the ability of the one who's called us to the work. So we have every reason to be hopeful and full of faith. Maybe it's more personal to you than, than the whole you know, uh, universal look of the church. Maybe it's something, a call of God on your life. And you're sensing it and you're feeling it. And it's like you're being drawn in more and more. And as you see it, you're like, oh no, is he, is he going to actually ask me to do this thing? Is he going to actually call me to, to step out in this way? And you feel it coming, and you're just like, I don't know if I'm ready for it. I don't know if I can do it. Listen, don't measure your own ability. A measure, you, our job, my job, it, we just got to hear the voice of the Lord. And the Lord says, step out, you step out. And all the what-ifs and all the possibilities of what could go wrong, those are in the hands of the Lord.
and we must trust him. So he says, I am almighty God. Then he says, walk before me and be blameless. Be holy. This is the call. But, but the idea of walk before me, it's, it's, it's one that ought to encourage everybody who's heard the voice of the Lord say, come after me. Follow me. This is an invitation to be in a relationship with God, with the Almighty One. If you are a follower of the Lord, then you are walking before Him. And He would say to you, be holy. It's sad to me that many, when they hear the word holy, they immediately begin to think of legalism or they think of harshness. Because that's not what should be communicated. Actually, you guys know, what does the word holy mean? Anybody, what does it mean? To be set apart, to be separated. That, that's the idea. He, and he's saying to Abram, I want you to walk before me. I want you to be blameless. I want you to be different than others. He would say to us in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. In the Old Testament, we think about the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling place where they had worshipped the Lord. Or we think about the temple, right, that was constructed by, by Solomon where they would go. That building was considered holy. The, the clothes that the priest wore, they were considered holy. You didn't think, oh, these are really nice. I think I'll wear them tomorrow night. No, you don't do that. That was in service to the Lord. Or, you know, the, the bowls that were there, the knives that were there. You didn't bring the knives home and said, honey, um, I know our knives have kind of been dull lately, so I brought some from the temple. They are so sharp, you're going to love them. No, this, you can't do that. That's holy. Even the anointing oil and the formula that was given to them on how to make it, the Lord said, don't you dare make this at home. Don't go and make this because you think, well, I just like being at the temple and I love that smell, so I'm going to make it for my house. He says, don't do it. You are not to duplicate that. Why? Because that anointing oil was what? It was holy. And the clothes were holy. And the implements and the altar, and that building was holy. That is, it was set apart for the worship of the Lord. And who are we? We are the temple of, of God. We are the, the, the New Testament temple. And the Spirit of the Lord resides in us. So it makes sense then that this earthen vessel where the Spirit of God resides should be one that is holy. That it is set apart. And, and here it is, there in 1 Peter, because I am holy. The motivation that we have in our heart to be holy is not, well, i got to keep a moral code of ethics because I just don't want to be immoral. Well, I don't want you to be immoral. Um, God doesn't want you to be immoral, but that's not our motivation. We're not just trying to punch a list of morality here. Every religion has their list of morality. What makes this difference is I'm wanting to be like God. You are wanting to be like the one who has called you. And so now this is not just a moral code I'm keeping. This is actually a desire to be like him. For some, when they hear the commandments of the Lord, it feels like a burden. It feels like a heavy trip that they don't want to have to carry out. But think about this for a moment. God's saying, I want you to be like me. And now, I don't know what you're into. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe you're a musician. Uh, pick your hobby. Imagine that the person that is at the top of the field, I mean, the one person that's known for being the expert in that, that interest or that hobby you have, 
And they were to come to you and say, hey, I want to teach you everything I know. I want you to become like me. Ah, no, thank you. I'm not interested. And this just seems like a legalistic trip to me. <laughs> what? No, it's not legalism. I, I'm not trying to be harsh with you. I'm just wanting to pass on everything I've learned and, and who I am. And I want you to be able to do what I, I, I do. No, see, that's not something that is unkind or unloving. That is an act of generosity. Man, I can't believe it. Well, that's the response we should have when God says, walk before me and be blameless. We should be, wow, I can't believe it. I can't believe that you would want me to resemble you in any fashion. I know I will never be you, but that I could reflect anything of your glory in nature is more than I could ever imagine. You know, uh, relationship makes a huge difference. You know, if you're married and you kiss your wife, nobody thinks about it. No big deal. If you're walking through the mall and you just go up and kiss somebody that you don't know, that's a big deal. Okay? Don't recommend you do that. Why is it? What's the big difference? Relationship. Relationship is the difference between being appropriate, awkward, um, or just feeling like the right thing to do. If you're here today and the idea of walking before God and being blameless or being holy just seems like it doesn't fit and it's awkward and it's just out of place, it's like, I don't want to live like that. It's probably because you're not in a relationship with him. Because the Lord put it this way, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. So obeying the Lord, being blameless before the Lord, or being holy before the Lord, it is completely tied up in our relationship with him. In 1 John, we read that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not a drag. So ask yourself, evaluate, what do the commandments of God look like? What does the call to walk before me and be blameless? Or what does the call to say, you know, hey, become like me? How does it hit you? If it seems like, well, man, I've just got to give up everything I like and I enjoy and I don't want to live like that and this is difficulty and I just want to be myself, it's speaking about your relationship with the Lord. It's speaking about the, either the relationship that exists or doesn't exist or the level of that relationship. And the, the more intimate you grow and the deeper you grow with the person, the easier it is to express that love to them. So maybe, maybe part of the problem here is you're not even a believer and you're trying to live a, a Christian life. You're trying to live a holy life and you really have never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your heart has not been touched. Your mind has not been touched. Because I can tell you, although there is that struggle that exists between the spirit and the flesh, at the end of the day, the spirit within you cries out jealously, and you feel it, and you know it, and you want to be like him. And if you don't feel that at all, you need to come to Christ. You need to come and be saved and let him touch your heart and your life. You know, the voice of our culture and today is indulge yourself. What do you want to do? What feels good? Go live it out. But the voice of the Lord is, be holy for I am holy. Well, yeah, but you know, I don't want to be untrue to myself. I don't want to deny myself, you know, of who I really am. Well, come out this coming Wednesday night and you'll find out that Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross and what? Deny yourself. The voice of Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. 
The voice of our culture says, indulge who you are so you can really discover who you are. That is not true. That is not true. It's when you come in contact with the creator that you re- and become more and more like him because you were created to have fellowship with him and to be like him. The more that happens, the more that sanctification process happens in your life, the more content you will be in this life. I mean, just look. Look at those that are indulging themselves in the flesh the most. Are they happy? Are they full? Are their lives the kind of life you want yours to look like when it's all said and done? And you'll see that they are miserable because they are separated from their creator. Isaiah put it this way, there is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace. So I don't know if this is that you've never entered into a relationship with the Lord, and so being holy seems like a really terrible thing. Or maybe you're like a couple that is genuinely married, so the awkwardness thing shouldn't be there. However, we all have seen couples that have been married a really long time, and yet they, they live like practical strangers. There's no kind of, I mean, for them to hold hands would seem like, you know, a very odd thing. They would like, they'd have to learn how to do it all over again. They used to know how to do that. They used to know how to hold hands and share compliments. You know, they, they, that used to be a part of the relationship, but now, man, that's, that's just would be weird. I'd feel more comfortable holding my buddy's hand than my wife. You know, that, that kind of a thing. It's just like they, they've grown so far apart. And, and so maybe that's what's going on. It's not that you're not saved, but you've grown so far apart from the Lord. When El Shaddai says, walk before me and be blameless, you're like, mm, yeah, but I don't, this doesn't feel comfortable. Because the relationship has grown so far apart. The closer you get to the Lord, the more impressed with who he, you will be of who he is. And the more impressed of who he is, the more you'll want to be like him. So this is, I think, such an important understanding for us to have as we talk about being holy or being blameless before the Lord. Let's keep on reading verses 2 through 8. God reminds Abraham of the covenant that he made with him. He says, I will make my covenant between me and you and I multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, worship, amazement, and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, uh, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. So Abram meant exalted father. Abraham just took it to the next level, which was father of a great multitude. Kind of hard for a guy who doesn't have, uh, he has one child through uh, a mistress, but he has no child through his wife to have to go and share his name everywhere. Yeah, I just got a new name. God gave me a brand new name. He did. What is the name? Uh, Father of a great multitude. Wait a minute. Do you have any kids? No, not really. But see, the Lord is not looking at what he has. The Lord is looking at what he's going to do. And was that fulfilled? And has that been fulfilled? And the answer is absolutely. It has been fulfilled. So now from here on out, we're going to read, uh, not of Abram, but we're going to read of Abraham. Let's read verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will... Make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. 
for an everlasting covenant to be uh, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. So he didn't own anything. He was still living as a, uh, you know, as a sojourner. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's the relationship between them. That's part of the covenant. There's the promise of having many descendants, and there's a promise of some uh, geographical borders inside the land of Canaan. He says, this is the covenant that I've made with you, Abraham, and I'm just reminding you of it right now. Verses 9 through 14. We now have the introduction of the sign of this covenant, which is circumcision. Verse 9 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So quite clearly, that's the sign. Verse 12, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who was born in your house and he who was bought with money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He shall be broken. Or excuse me. He has broken my covenant. So, awkward topic, but why circumcision? Why would God choose to have that, of all things, to be the sign of the covenant? I think the only thing that seems like a logical answer to me is, Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Eve was given the promise that she would have a child, and that child, that seed, would be the one who would be the promised deliverer that would reverse the curse that came into place there in the garden when they sinned against the Lord. So having this as the mark on their flesh would remind them of the promise of the coming seed and that that seed now is coming through. Eventually a woman will be give birth, but will be a descendant of Abraham. So it's emphasizing the physical lineage of the promised Messiah that is to come. So they would circumcise their uh, newborn uh, sons on the eighth day, or if anybody came into the family, they would have to be circumcised as well. Now, that's the physical aspect of it. And we're going to read more about the spiritual aspects in just a moment in the New Testament. But I want you to know this. I really hope that you'll see this. It isn't only a physical thing that God was concerned about. We began by the Lord saying, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. So he's talking about the way you live. Your heart for the Lord. And that becomes so clear in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Don't be resisting me. Don't be uncircumcised. So circumcision picks up this spiritual metaphor of, either, uh, of being 
yielded to the Lord or being obedient to the Lord or having a love for the Lord, which is really clear in this next passage, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Why? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So yes, there was that very real physical mark that was to be in the generations of Israel. But it was to also represent not just the relationship they were in, but the aspect of walk before me and be blameless. It was to represent that not just their skin was being cut, but that their heart and their eyes and their ears and their hands and their feet and their mind was all being cut off from the world and was being set upon the things of God. Even in the Old Testament, God wanted a circumcised heart. Yes, a circumcised body, but he wanted a circumcised heart that symbolized their love and their connection with the Lord. Let's keep reading verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And the basic difference is, rather than being a prince of a, a single family, you're going to be a princess of many families. So essentially the same idea and the name change of Abram uh, to Abraham is found in the name change of Sarai to Sarah. And it's now that the Lord begins to introduce another um, aspect of this promise that is not found stated in Scripture. So he's introduced the idea of circumcision for the first time. And now what we're going to see as we read through this, he's going to come straight out and say, Sarah is the one who's going to bear you the child. Now, I think it only makes sense that at the beginning of the promise, that he would have naturally assumed that his wife, Sarah, was going to be the one that would give the child. But as time went along and no child was coming, Abraham said, hey, you know, Lord, you're making this promise to me about all these descendants. And I tell you what, I've got a, a servant by the name of Eleazar. We're just going to adopt him and he can be the one. He's like, no, the promise is going to come from your body, Abraham. So then time rolls on. It's like, Sarah's like, well, it's going to come from your body. He didn't say it's going to come from my body. So why don't you take Hagar and she can raise up the child, um, you know, for you that has been promised. And they did that. But as we're going to see, that was not the promise that the Lord had made to them. And so now the focus is going to come squarely upon not only Abraham, but also Sarah. So let's read in verses 16 through 22, where the promise of a son... Uh, named Isaac, which Isaac means laughter. Keep that in mind. Isaac means laughter. And he says in verse 16, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. This is when Abraham's head popped up and his eyes got real big, okay? So he, he, he's heard about Sarah's name change. He said, now Sarah's going to be the one that's going to have a child. What? How does he respond? Well, the Lord says, I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. It's like, you have got to be, or is this like a joke? <laughs> you, want, you want Sarah to have a kid? She's not going to have a kid. I'm not going to have a kid. What are you talking about? And he begins to state things in his heart. It says, 
Um, he fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? So but if he's 99 now, by the time he has a, a child, gonna be, I'm going to be 100 years old? And Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So I know you're not interested in Eleazar, and let's talk about another option. How about Ishmael? He's my 13-year-old son. What do you think about him? And verse 18, um, Oh, that Ishmael lived before you. Then God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I see that you like to laugh. So why don't we just call the promise I'm giving you laughter? And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful. And I will multiply him exceedingly. And he shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. And so he's the father of the Arab nations and um, certainly this prophecy has been fulfilled. He's going to have 12 sons, right? Jacob is going to have 12 sons. You're, you're, he's going to be blessed, and he's going to have many sons, just like the promised child, verse 21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you as a, at this time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. It is going to be Sarah. And she's going to have a son this time next year. And you're going to name him Isaac. And I'm not going to take Ishmael as the promised descendant. That is going to come through Sarah and you. So, the promise of the land, the promise of a seed coming through um, Ishmael, him, his descendants having the land, says, no, this is going to be through um, Isaac. And of course, these are still points of tension um, between the Arabs and um, the Jews, Christian faith and teaching um, to this very day. Is there something God has said he wants to do through your life that almost makes you laugh? You're like, oh, come on. I mean, look at me. You, know, you, don't, you can't possibly think that you're going to use this old guy or you're going to use this young lady, or you're going to use this inferior gifted individual to do these types of things. Yeah, I mean, come on, Lord, I know that you're calling me to this and doing this, but listen, what, look at them over there, right over there. She would be great at that. Or he, let him do that. He's already doing it. There's enough people doing that. Lord, I don't want to do that. Let somebody else do it. No, the Lord's calling you for his glory and for his honor. We don't say, no, Lord. That doesn't make sense, does it? No, Lord, no, Master. Servants don't say no. They say, yes, Lord. So whatever the Lord is calling you to, no matter how impossible it may seem, your answer and your response is, yes, Lord. I will do what you have called me to do. And so he has faith. And he's going to get up and do exactly what the Lord has told him to do. So although he fell on his face in laughter, he's thinking of other solutions that will help out God. When it's all said and done, Abraham is obedient to the covenant and to the sign of that covenant. Verse 23, so Abraham took Ishmael his son, 
All who were born in his house and all who were bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael was, uh, his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Cut off in devotion. The Lord comes to him and he lays out the promise again and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to cut off your flesh. And Abraham goes and he does it even though in his natural thinking this does not seem like a real possibility. But it's almost like we read here, although the words are not found, nevertheless, Lord, I will do it. And that very same day he got up and he took care of this. I want you to think about this. Maybe in the last year, maybe in the last 5, 10, 20 years of your life, your walk with Jesus, there are things that have kind of just become fleshly around you. you, you you're tolerating things in your ears and before your eyes, coming out of your mouth. Your hands are going on tasks and your feet are taking you to places that, hey, 20 years ago, the, that circumcised you, that person cut off from the world would say, no way, I'm never going to do that. I wouldn't be engaged in that. I want nothing to do with that. But now, excuses have been made. Now, it's present in your life. Well, I, I just want to challenge you with those words that come up twice in this passage that very same day. May, the day be today, may today be the day that you're like, I'm done with that. That's not going to be before my eyes. That is not going to come out of my mouth again. I'm not going to give my ears to this any longer. I am not going to meditate on those types of things. I am going to circumcise my heart to the Lord afresh. I'm going to be cut off from those things. Because what? We're, we're to be holy. We're to be separate. We're to walk before God and be blameless. As we wrap up this study here, I want us to just read a few passages from the New Testament. We're not going to tarry long, but I just want to read a few passages from the New Testament that help us to understand how we should view circumcision as Christians. And so we begin in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, which is a commentary on chapter 17. So... I mean, the best, way, best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, so let's read it. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So we're hearkening back to chapter 15, where he believes God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Um, you know, at least 13 years prior, he had already been counted righteous because of faith. 
And so we keep on reading, it says, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of the circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So here's the point. Do you believe in the Lord like Abraham believed in the Lord? Do you have faith in the redemption promise? Of course, we see the fuller picture. Do you have faith like him? Then righteousness has been accounted to you, and you have as a father Abraham. You are like him. You are a descendant of him because you have similar faith. The point that Paul's making here is that some were saying, and we'll see it again in Galatians, some were saying that faith in Jesus Christ was not enough. You had to have faith in Jesus Christ, but you also had to be circumcised. So as Paul was evangelizing Gentiles around, uh, mainly throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and they were coming to faith, all of them were uncircumcised, and they were coming to faith in Jesus, and there were people that were traveling behind and questioning Paul's uh, ministry tactics and saying, you've got you to circumcise these guys because they, they knew chapter 17. You know, foreigners have to be circumcised. And all that. Well, but he says, wait a minute. This is something that is now different. God is doing something different. This is not about the nation of Israel. This is about the church of Jesus Christ. And so he says, no, you don't. Circumcision does not provide righteousness. Faith provides righteousness. Again, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, So stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. You want to go get circumcised so that you can really experience the fullness of Jesus? Well, let me tell you something. He's not going to do anything for you. Why? Verse 3. And I testify again to you, every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. The point that is made in the New Testament is that we are not saved through the work of circumcision, which was the big doctrinal argument of the day. We are saved through faith. But as we move into Colossians, still with all of that as a backdrop, Paul introduces this idea that every believer has been circumcised by Christ, spiritually speaking. It says, in him, chapter 2, verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision, and here it is, made without hands. Abraham's circumcision was the one made with hands. But in him, in Jesus, you were circumcised by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in the tre your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. In Jesus we're forgiven. In Jesus that flesh life is cut off. In Jesus our heart is made uh, dedicated and marked for him. So 
Paul again saying, you don't have to do this. But really, a, a, a one simple verse that sums up this whole issue for us, and that's our last verse, is 1 Corinthians 7.19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And is that so different from the heart of what was introduced in the Old Testament when the Lord says, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless? Or in Deuteronomy, when he says, circumcise your heart, I want you to love me with your whole heart. Well, what matters is not whether or not you've been circumcised or uncircumcised physically. What matters is that we walk in holiness and purity before the Lord as people who have had our hearts circumcised by the Lord. So, again, not to be too redundant, but we live lives cut off from the flesh. We don't indulge the flesh. We should have circumcised eyes. We are cutting off, looking at things that would be corrupt. We have circumcised um, ears. We're, we're cutting off things that are, are corrupt and we don't allow them to come into our hearing. We have circumcised hands. We only put our hands to those tasks that are, that are for the glory of God. We're not allowing our feet to take us to places we shouldn't be or into relationships we shouldn't have. We have circumcised hearts that are dedicated to the Lord in love and we walk in his commandments. So if that is needed in your life to return back to this place of having a cut-off life in devotion, then may it be this very day that you make that decision. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way your word is applicable to us here in 2021. A passage, an event that happened thousands of years ago, and yet it it speaks to us of the relationship we have with you or that we can have with you. It speaks to us of how you want us to live our life. And I pray that, Lord, we as your church would hear.